The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. The British people have had enough of waiting. The time has come to act. People are really angry out there. They're angry that the referendum's not being carried out. But they're even angrier that politicians' promises to them have been broken. Given how huge this decision is for our country, the severe consequences there will be for generations, it is time to put this back to the people and stop this Brexit chaos. We will do everything necessary to stop a disastrous no deal. You're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salek. And a very good afternoon. I'm Caroline Hepgut. Well, Seb, the Irish government pouring cold water on an imminent breakthrough when it comes to the Brexit negotiations. The Irish Foreign Minister, Simon Coveney, this morning a warning that a deal is not close, in his words. Yeah, mixed messaging at first glance, anyway, from the EU, because what we're hearing from President uh, Jean-Claude Juncker was that the divorce deal is possible, sent the pound to its highest level since the dollar in two months. So it's clearly getting the city very excited uh, and it's raising a few eyebrows around the place as well. Yeah and I sort of wonder whether sterling traders got a little ahead of themselves. I mean was Juncker really signalling anything new? I think we can delve into that. Yeah absolutely. It's something we can put to our Bloomberg reporters later on in the programme. We've got Bloomberg Brexit reporter in Wishart over in Brussels. Here with us in London we're going to have our government reporter Stuart Biggs so let's really dig into the detail here and we can pour it over the language as well but first I'm pleased to say that joining us in the studio is Joey Jones who's the strategic counsel at Cicero Group. He was formerly the deputy political editor at Sky News and a spokesperson for Theresa May in 2016. So who better to get into the finer details? Joey, let's start by passing the language on this one. Had Coveney saying that the mood is better, but a deal is no nearer. And Juncker saying a Brexit deal is possible by the end of October. Let's have a listen quickly to Juncker and and see exactly what he said. I had a meeting with uh, Boris Johnson, the prime minister. This was a rather positive uh, meeting, uh, although the British press was reporting it in the other way. We can, we can have a deal. So, Joe, help us settle the debate we had this morning. Is this a material shift? Um, I, a deal will be done on substance, not on mood music and choreography. Uh, I think the, the, what we are seeing is that as we come close to the deadline of uh, October the 31st, then all sides recognise that there is a danger that this will collapse and that a deal won't be done and that we will head into uh, a no-deal uh, situation. And they don't want to be blamed for it. The, the European Union has always wanted to come across as conciliatory. They recognise that there is a danger of scapegoating, so they are doing all that they can to offer warm words while recognising uh, that there is every possibility that they won't be able to bridge that gap. So in my view, no, it's not not a change in terms of substance. I think the substance remains hugely uh, challenging. Uh, it is basically about people making sure that the, that if things do go awry, they don't want to be on the wrong end of the uh, scapegoating and criticism that will follow. Yeah, and it's interesting that you know that that sort of blame game has been going back and forth between the EU and, and Boris Johnson and various others all week. But look, when it does come to the substance, did you detect anything new? For example, when I look back at this week, where so much has happened, the DUP leader Arlene Foster. Is there any wiggle room? Um, obviously, she represents 
uh, a significant party in Northern Ireland and one that did support Theresa May's government and is important also to Boris Johnson. Is there any move from her, any real change this week? Yes, that does feel as though there is a, a willingness to be more conciliatory. Uh, conciliatory. Uh, and also... Um, On the Conservative side, the fact that uh, Boris Johnson has laid down such a hard line in terms of expelling uh, those that would not support his negotiating strategy on the Remain side means that he can play hardball with those on the Brexit side, so the ERG, if he manages to bring back a deal. So if they can reach an accommodation, which, as I say, still feels like a a big stretch uh, from where uh, I'm sitting uh, at the moment, then the parliamentary arithmetic looks looks better. I think ultimately what people are realising is that this will end one day in a deal, right? It will end in a deal that is not going to be a million miles away from what uh, Theresa May uh, put to the House of Commons but was rejected uh, three times. It might be that it's this side of no deal. It might be that it's the other side of uh, no deal. But I think it is starting to sink in that the there is an inevitability about where we end up. It's a question as whether, of whether or not people are willing to uh, bite the bullet now uh, or to stand their ground, fight mm, their corner yeah. uh, and see where we end up down the track so the stakes very high is it just a question of timing then because if we get a deal similar to Mays this is something that Johnson has criticized to no end in the past how is he going to sell that to the, the same people well it might be that it ends up not being Boris Johnson uh, doing that I mean I'm, I'm when, when I'm talking about timing I'm talking about something that could be hours or years uh, it really is uh, when I say that there is an inevitability about it and an, an inexorable quality about it that doesn't necessarily mean it will come soon it could be that we have all sorts of labyrinthine twists and turns before we get to that point. Uh, But the EU side is not going to put up with that, surely? Um, Well, the EU side has been uh, patient uh, throughout. The EU side has also made it clear that they will continue to countenance uh, extensions if there is an ongoing process. So maybe a general election, maybe a referendum. A referendum, if we were to prepare for a referendum, and I know that feels like a a long way away at the moment, but we are exhausting all alternatives at the moment. So if we were to end up there, it would take months to prepare that, and I'm sure that the EU would allow that to happen. So looking to a possible deal this side of the 31st of October, is there really time to scrutinise that and then get a vote through before we hit that crucial date? Uh, in not 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 in a proper way, no. Uh, so we're talking about the thumbscrews going on from the Whip's office and from Downing Street. And given that they have been so uh, tough in their approach to rebels on, on one side, they would have no, no difficulty really in doing the same. But no, in an ideal world, we should have a lot more time to, uh, to scrutinise it. And I'm sure that there will be parliamentarians who will be, uh, who will be upset and exhausted exasperated by by that situation. But Mm. at the same time, there are very many who are also exhausted by uh, the process that we've seen lay out and are, 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 are ready to get this done. Okay, ready to get it done. Well, could it get done more swiftly uh, if we get the Supreme Court um, making a decision on the prorogation of Parliament? Lord Panic said that John Burko, the Speaker of the House, could actually recall Parliament next week without the Prime Minister's consent if the government loses the court case. Would he Would he do that? Would he be able to do that? Uh, yeah, I imagine he would. Uh, I imagine that John Burko would uh, do that with great relish. Um, having been myself a, a journalist in the past, the one thing that I, I did learn uh, to avoid was trying to speculate on what judges, uh, particularly uh. 11 senior, the most senior judges might, might do. But I will still give it a go. And my gut feeling is that the judges will what will 
I think they may find a way to tr stay out of that hotly politi politicised arena. Having said that, having said that, though they may, and as I say, it's wildly speculative. While they may end up feeling that this is not um, something they, that they can judge on the legality of it, wouldn't be at all surprised if there's a bit of a swipe at Boris Johnson and the wisdom of his offering the advice that he did to Her Majesty the Queen. And if there is that sort of oblique, uh, uh, well, criticism, however oblique or tangential it might be, that really does put, does, would put the Prime Minister in quite a spot. Yeah, he's certainly come under some pressure, hasn't he, throughout the proceedings. So if we do get uh, Parliament recalled, what should the anti-No Deal MPs be doing? What more can they do now? Uh, well, that's a fair point. They they have done what they need to do. They feel they've backed Boris Johnson into a corner. Uh, they feel that he is uh, in a parliamentary straitjacket already uh, in that he, if he does not come back with a deal from the EU uh, council meeting in the in the middle of October, he is bound by the Ben Bill, by the legislation that was passed by, by, by Parliament, uh, to uh, request an extension. So once they've done that, and if they feel that it's genuinely watertight, there is not an awful lot more. It's more about an expression of principle uh, and it's about uh, I think that uh, that many of them feel that uh, that Boris Johnson has not just been exploiting um, the position of authority that he obviously now enjoys as uh, as prime minister uh, and uh, but but over overreaching uh, over exploiting that authority and not playing by the rules so I think they would uh, they would use the the bully pul bully pulpit of Parliament being recalled mm. uh, to make that that point forcibly to him uh, look you mentioned uh, the Queen when it comes uh, to prorogation and, and Boris Johnson. But then we got this really very unusual public rebuke by Buckingham Palace uh, for the former Prime Minister, David Cameron. He revealed in his book this request for the Queen to come out against the Scottish uh, independence referendum. Um, uh, I mean, it's in all of the newspapers. The BBC had it as a royal source, quote, displeased by this. The Queen really being dragged into to politics, mired in politics, an unusual rebuke. Uh, yes, I was very surprised really that David Cameron uh, uh, I mean this is a, this is uh, a book where he wants to touch on everything uh, during his period in power but he's already got into hot water with the palace do you remember when he, he talked about how the Queen I think it was after the after the Scottish referendum though forgive me if I'm misremembering had purred down the phone uh, to him this was something where he was filmed at some distance away but with a microphone not some distance away uh, and so it, it, it became public and you would have thought he'd have learnt from that but Instead, he was open about the fact that he sought to elicit the support of uh, Buckingham Palace in the days before the Queen ended up saying that people should think very hard before going into uh, the ballot box. I'm not surprised that the Queen and that her uh, closest advisers are very upset by this because it's uh, hotly sensitive the, uh, the the position of the monarch at the moment in politics and the last thing that they needed was to be drawn into a situation where um, it looked as though uh, Her Majesty had succumbed to um, blandishments or, or some sort of persuasion or leverage from Downing Street in the past. Very quickly, I want to ask you about Labour. We've got conference next week. Corbyn, of course, going to make a big speech. His position on Brexit still so fudged. It's trying to be all things to all people. Is that going to be tenable going into an election? Well, it's the same as last year, actually, and it was tenable then. Uh, it's not great, and uh, it's not doorstep ready, the, uh, the Labour 
Brexit position. It's not going to be doorstep ready by the time of a general election either. But my gut feeling is that they will manage to tough it out in pretty much the way that they did uh, last year and try to get it onto other domestic, uh, uh, get the agenda onto other domestic issues. But plainly, I, I, I don't want to gloss over this. Their, their Brexit position is a total mess. And that's one of the key reasons why Boris Johnson and his advisers feel that despite the, uh, the, the, the fact that their own poll rating is mm. not soaring, that they still have a chance of a substantial electoral victory in a general election. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Shall we have a look through the papers? Yeah, indeed. So the story that we were talking about, the the Queen and this rebuke to David Cameron, uh, actually, it's all over the newspapers. I'm not quite sure why it's sort of a, a source rather than simply a press release, <laughs> quite frankly, because the Times, the Sun, the Eye, the Daily Mail, everybody's got it. Basically, the, the substance of this um, is that it's an unprecedented royal rebuke, as the Daily Mail puts it. Palace officials said that the former Prime Minister had caused Her Majesty an amount of displeasure with his claim, the claim being that he had uh, tried to ask, tried to encourage the Queen maybe raise to say... Raise an eyebrow was the phrase he used. Yeah, raise an eyebrow at the Scottish independence referendum. And obviously this goes completely against convention, doesn't it? The Queen uh, not getting involved in politics. But then we are not in ordinary times and conventions be darned, perhaps. Absolutely not. But it comes at such an interesting time, doesn't it, when we've got all this debate over whether the Boris Johnson was dragging the Queen into things and whether he should do that. We've seen that there has been some coordination allegedly in in the past and, and pretty bold of Cameron to come out about that in his book and no shortage of of concern and debate over all of this and as you say a pretty direct message from the palace yeah absolutely uh, meanwhile of course we go into the Labour Party conference uh, next week we're going to have uh, our own Anna Edwards on the ground for us so t- tune in next week but ahead of that lots of kind of debate about what the big speech from the Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn will be all about and I like the one from Politico's uh, Charlie Cooper he's saying that Corbyn finds himself in very unfamiliar territory i.e. the middle ground uh, when it comes to Brexit you know, and the quote also that is fascinating, uh, Corbyn and a Labour official, a Labour official saying of Corbyn that he wants to stick to the real stuff, basically not talk about Brexit. Is that really possible? Trying to redefine the pre-election debate and talk about class, society, economics and the proposals for major redistribution of wealth. So that's maybe what Corbyn wants to look at. Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't be a surprise, would it? It's something that Corbyn does all the time, A, because he wants to avoid Brexit and B, because he wants to reshape the party and focus on all of these things. We've already heard some policy proposals around private schools uh, yes. and, and, and that like and the financial transaction tax and really radical stuff that they want to try and get through. So it'll be interesting to see just how much headway they make with the party membership uh, next week. We've also got on that note to talk about Harriet Harman coming mm. under pressure from her constituency down in Peckham. They voted last night to urge her to withdraw her name to be the next speaker. Concerns there that uh, the seat will be left without a Labour MP. That's their argument. They want uh, Peckham and Camberwell to be represented. You've got to look below, but beyond that, though, don't you, really? Yeah, I mean, is she an MP of 20 years or so, I imagine? I think she is. She's been hitting back hard at her critics. Uh, she says uh, that she will is, is undiminished. She's adding, I will not back down. 
and then hinting at running a candidate against her, which is really going against convention. And it was something we heard just the other day from the Tories. Andrea Leadsom saying that that could have happened against Burko. That was, of course, before he talked about uh, about stepping down. Uh, but should we get to our reporters then? Because we are covered today. We've got all the action going on here in London. Then we've also got uh, those discussions happening in in uh, on the continent. So joining us now from Brussels is our Bloomberg Brexit reporter, Ian Wishart. With us here in the London studio is our UK government reporter, Stuart. Biggs. Uh, Ian, I'm going to start with you. Um, we've had this, uh, the, these comments both from Ireland and from Juncker himself. The EU famously well organised with its messaging. This surely is about not being accused of allowing a no deal. This is not as contradictory as it seems, I guess. I think that's exactly what it is. The EU's priority now, actually, is not to be blamed for no deal. They're very conscious of the fact that Boris Johnson and his government, since since he came, since he became prime minister, they're very conscious of the fact that they're shifting the blame onto the EU. So what they're trying to do on the EU side is basically two prongs. Actually, on the one side, they're working quite quite tirelessly actually to try to get a deal. They remain quite open. They remain fairly flexible, but on the other side, making sure that the rest of the world knows that so that if the crunch comes and there is a no deal crash out, they don't get the blame. OK, so it's a blame game. Stuart Biggs, our UK government reporter, always good to see you in the studio. Uh, look, do you think the EU's just given up on all of this because of uh, the, the Johnson administration? They're, they're just trying to move on to other issues? I suspect they haven't given up, but I suspect also that the, they're somewhat pessimistic that Uh, there is going to be a breakthrough. I think the important thing to remember on the UK side is that politically it's much better uh, for Boris Johnson. No matter how this plays out in the long run, politically it's much better to be seen to be searching very hard for a deal. So you've you've got this rhetoric coming from both sides. We're working hard to get a deal. Neither side is being able to show how it can happen. And and obviously the onus is on the UK to do that. And, And there clearly isn't any details at the moment on something that would be even approaching acceptable to the EU. There was a story today, though, saying that uh, the port of of Dover is 100% ready. How can businesses say that when there's so much uncertainty? How can you be ready for something that you don't know what it's going to be? I think it's it's very interesting, the comments in that story, that the preparation uh, has been done in the sense of what can be prepared for, but the comments were quite clear that there's so much at the moment that businesses are not clear about. It's simple things like what kind of paperwork they're actually going to need. And so as soon as uh, that, you know, we're in, if we are in a no-deal Brexit, mm-hmm. it's only going to take some, some sort of, um, you know, hold-ups in terms of trucks going through and, and the whole thing can, can as, as we saw in the government's own uh, Yellowhammer document, we can see how delays can can happen and are expected to happen. Yeah, and credit where credit is due. This is, of course, by Bloomberg reporter Alex Morales, who is speaking to the chief executive officer, Doug Bannister, of uh, the port of Dover, which is the sit- which actually handles about a sixth of the UK's trade uh, in goods. He was saying the port of Dover is 100% ready, ferry operators 100% ready, Calais, Dunkirk 100% ready. ready. So that's sort of, uh, you know, the, the, the stance from the ports. I mean, but yes, it's a fascinating interview to you know why and how they think that they are fully prepared for something that we still don't know exactly what it's going to look like. 
Yeah, Ian, I've got to ask you, we know that another thing the EU loves is a last-minute rush. And I'm seeing these headlines today from the Latvian Central Bank, the forecast that a no-deal Brexit could cut the country's GDP by 0.8 to 1.7% in the midterm. Of course, Ireland is going to be very affected. And so there are, there's a lot to lose still for Brussels, despite the fact that they may have the upper hand. Um, so are they banking on being able to sort this out at the 11th hour? Yes, kind of. Don't underestimate the the demand for the EU to get a deal. They are determined to try every possible avenue to try to get a deal. They would prefer it to be in good time, to be a few weeks before Brexit Day on October the 31st. But if it comes to it, I can see them still being here in Brussels trying to thrash it out at 11pm. So, you know, they say they're ready too. They're preparing. They're doing contingency work. But at the end of the day, they would much prefer a deal. And I think any sort of spin on the UK side that says whether well, well, the EU isn't really trying hard enough is, is nonsense. Really, the EU mm. really wants a deal too. Well, and of course, this is the week that you know we've been talking about chicken, about this game of chicken between the UK and the EU. Everybody expecting the other person to swerve first. But you know, do you think that there is any possibility that the EU might back down even a little? Uh, yeah, it depends what you mean by back, backing mm, down, really. Sure. There, there are concessions to be made. The EU knows what those concessions could be and what, how far it's prepared to go. The gamble is when does it do it? How far does it go? And is it going to be affected? Because what they don't want to do is offer concessions and then for Boris Johnson to go back to the House of Commons and for those concessions and that deal to be rejected again. And that's what they're really worried about. So it, really it is a, a a strategy on their side to think we we know we can give a little bit but we don't know if that's enough and we don't know when to do it. Stuart what are things looking like uh, from this Supreme Court decision if Boris Johnson loses? Well the government said uh, in its filing yesterday that they see uh, three scenarios and one of which you know quite controversially is uh, a ruling that allows them to you know, perhaps rules that it was unlawful to do so, but still allows them to prorogue a second time, to suspend Parliament a second time. And of course, if that happens, we can imagine what the opposition uh, MPs are going to do at, or, or try to do. You know, I think that we get into a situation again where you've got a, a an impasse uh, in Parliament. It would go Presumably it would go straight back to the courts and we'd go through this, you know, we really are entering a sort of unprecedented uh, constitutional struggle at, at the moment. And it's if the government sees three scenarios, if it's found to be to have acted unlawfully, <laughs> that you can imagine how many actual scenarios there are when Parliament gets involved as as well, which yeah. it, it is inevitably going to do. No, I mean, it's an absolute slugfest, isn't it, between the courts uh, and parliament and the, and the government. Um, but look, it, even this is kind of unconventional, flouting all of the norms, this rebuke from Buckingham Palace. What did you make of that? Because there was there has been so much interest in the Cameron autobiography this week, you know, the serialisation, uh, the TV interviews, and then Cameron revealing in the book that, you know, he, he was trying to get the Queen to talk about the Scottish referendum. Indeed, she did sort of make some comments about it, but then a real rebuke for, for him having revealed that in the book. It's very interesting. And I think the, the one thing that struck me from reading that was that, you know, it's a reminder that uh, 
the UK has been having a series of fairly fundamental votes over the last few years. So, you know, we think back to the Scottish referendum and at the time we thought this was going to be the, you know, the vote of the decade and then, you know, just after. But I think the, the reaction from the palace uh, to, uh, yesterday, perhaps it's a, perhaps it's a sort of um, a warning that, you know, the, queen, the Queen's been brought in or risks being brought in in the current, uh, you know, in the current sort of impasse over Brexit. And perhaps it was a sort of a warning that, you know, let's, be, let's, let's not get uh, too down, go too far down that road. But Stuart, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That's Stuart Biggs, our UK government reporter and live from Brussels also this morning, Bloomberg Brexit reporter Ian Wishart. Our oh, thanks to both of you. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.